we talked this morning. Thanks, Bob. We talked this morning about um, one of uh, the critical constituent elements, if you will, of uh, the ministry of the church and of gospel ministry, which is the announcement, the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, which is done in public places like this where God's people gather for worship, but it's the kind of thing uh, that is done as people engage their friends and neighbors and family members who, who may not know these glad tidings, the kind of thing that you talk about uh, as you engage them. Um, that's, that's part of gospel ministry, heralding, proclaiming, sharing, communicating the glad tidings of the gospel of the kingdom. It's only part of it. Um, the other part of it is the work of prayer, the business of prayer. And I wanted to take some time to talk about that tonight. Because if you take these two things and you put them together, what we talked about this morning, heralding uh, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, and what we're talking about this evening, you've got, you have the essence of the ministry of the church. You have the essence of the ministry of the gospel. Preaching, teaching, communicating, evangelizing, sharing, and praying. Um, I think we know a fair amount about the preaching side, the content side. And I think in our heads we know a fair amount about the praying side of things. But the praying side of things in execution, in my experience in 30 years in ministry, is the tougher part of this thing to do. And it's tougher to do, I think, for a number of reasons. I think unbelief has something to do with it. I'm not sure we really believe that the God of heaven and earth is able to do immeasurably more than all we could possibly imagine or dare to ask for. So unbelief can be um, a challenge for us. I think in our particular day and time, uh, another thing that that is a challenge for us is uh, frankly, our sophistication. And, and by that, I mean uh, the, the level of technology and education and material resources and intelligence and all of that stuff that we bring to bear when it comes to figuring stuff out, solving problems, building institutions, uh, all of the rest. We are, uh, we are an extraordinarily gifted, blessed able bunch of people. And when we run into a problem, uh, we bring all of these resources to bear in addressing this problem. And you've probably said this yourself. We will end up saying things like, we've done everything else. There's nothing else to do but pray, as though praying were sort of the last resort and the last thing to do. When when it really needs to be the first thing that we do uh, and one of the first marks uh, of the life of the church. So what I wanted to do is is take just a, a little bit of time and look at Matthew 6. I mean, there are obviously multiple places 
uh, for us to go in talking about uh, this business of praying. And I, and I have to tell you as I, as I um, begin that I'm not anybody's hero when it comes to this. Um, in fact, I need, I need help myself. I need to be involved with a group of folks who are committed to this business of prayer because I find that as I'm surrounded by prayers, I am incited to pray. I am encouraged myself to pray. I am helped in my own praying. Um, so as we walk through these things, I don't mean for a moment to suggest uh, that I'm a great example of the kind of thing that I would want for us to be together as a church. But I do want for us to be this kind of church, want to be this more and more this kind of pastor, and want for us more and more to be this, this kind of church. So um, look with me at Matthew 6, beginning at verse 5, and we'll, we'll just uh, pick some of this passage apart. Um, Matthew, Matthew 6, beginning at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now let me suggest four things. And we'll take maybe 30 or 40 minutes with each one of them. Okay. Let me suggest first thing, four things. First thing is this. Jesus assumes that his people are going to pray. There isn't a command to pray in the passage. There is the assumption that his people will pray. When you pray, he says in verse 5. Uh, verse 6, when you pray. Verse 7, when you pray. Um, it is assumed in the mind of Jesus that his people are going to pray. Uh, prayer was a central feature of Jesus' life himself. Uh, if you go uh, to Mark's gospel, for example, Mark chapter 135, in the midst of a very busy and very successful ministry, you could say, uh, Jesus, in the midst of that busyness and in the midst of that success, withdrew early in the morning to a quiet place to pray. He, he removed himself from all of that activity uh, and removed himself from that activity for the, for the specific purpose of praying. Uh, Peter had to come and find him. Uh, when Peter found him, he asked him, 
you know, what do you, I mean, in effect, what are you, what are you doing out here? All of the, all of these people have been gathered around and these crowds are here and there's this marvelous ministry that's going on. Uh, well, in the midst of it, and there are probably a number of reasons for why Jesus may have removed himself from all of that ministry, busyness to pray. The point is that in the midst of it all, he removed himself from it. He found a quiet place and he prayed. If you read through Luke's gospel, you could almost structure Luke's gospel um, by the occasions where you find Jesus praying. Multiple instances in Luke's gospel, Jesus is found praying. He prays uh, before the selecting of the disciples. He prays uh, on the mountain of transfiguration before going to Jerusalem. Um, The Father, in effect, confirming who he is and commissioning him for his work of suffering and dying for his people. Again, there are uh, a number of places in Luke's gospel where you find Jesus praying. So prayer is, uh, is an essential part of his ministry. Prayer is an essential part uh, of Paul's ministry. Look at the greetings in the letters that Paul writes to these churches all across Asia Minor. Uh, I think in every case but one, uh, the one exception being the letter to the Galatians, uh, Paul mentions the fact in his greetings in one way or another that he hasn't stopped praying for folks. Romans 1.8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. God is my witness that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4, I give thanks always for you. And, and those were the Corinthians that he was praying for always, all the time. They needed it, uh, but they were never out of his mind. Ephesians 6, if you remember, uh, beginning in verse 10, Paul enumerates this armor that he encourages us uh, to clothe ourselves in. When he gets to the end of all of that, the last thing that he does is ask the Ephesians, this group of people with whom he had spent considerable time, he asks them for their prayers. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Uh, And then he asks them specifically that they would pray for him that he might be given words to proclaim the gospel boldly, Ephesians 6, 19. So prayer is clearly at the heart of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and he's calling upon his friends to pray for him uh, as he's involved in ministry. And then uh, prayer is to be a central feature of leadership in the church. And this has a particular uh, and very specific application to elders, to Glenn, to Zach, and to me. Not exclusively, but it has particular application to us. Uh, As the church in Jerusalem was growing, as people were coming to Christ, and as they were bringing all of their needs into the church, uh, the apostles were challenged with meeting those needs. How do we care for all of these widows whom God in his providence is bringing into the church? And they set apart a different group of people, six men, Philip and and the others, who were charged with responsibility for meeting that specific need, for marshalling the resources of the church to meet the physical needs of these widows. 
And the reason they set apart those six men was so that they, the apostles, could give themselves to the word of God and to prayer. The responsibilities of the apostles devolve upon elders, upon ruling elders and teaching elders. And one of the things that I've, that I've already said to Zach and Glenn, I said this a month or so ago when I was down here to meet with them. Um, if I come here, you need to understand that this is a ministry that will be conducted, will be done in weakness. It is a ministry that will be done on our knees first. And I need you to remind me that I need to be on my knees and I need to be reminding you that we together need to be on our knees. And I just don't, this is a huge problem, I think, in the church, that we are so busy doing the business of the church that we don't do the real business of ministry as leaders, as elders. Put together our agendas. We attach, you know, 20 minutes for this, five minutes for that, 15 minutes for this. We get frustrated when we don't get a decision made according to the agenda. I've heard pastors talk about giving one minute to prayer for every minute that they spend in a business meeting. I have yet, myself, and maybe it's a function of my lousy leadership, but I have yet myself to be in leadership in a church where we've actually done it. But I'm resolved to model what Christ himself modeled, what Paul modeled, and what the early church modeled, giving as much priority to praying as to the ministry of the word. So prayer is clearly uh, in all three of those, in Jesus, in Paul, and in the life of the church, an essential thing. Um, So again, prayer is something that's assumed. Jesus, he just assumes that it's going to go on. Uh, And and I want to assume that it's going to go on here. I don't want to have to develop an apologetic for prayer, for moment-by-moment dependence upon Christ in prayer as a central feature of the life of the church. So, number one, prayer is assumed. Second thing, how are we to pray? A couple of correctives in this passage. Verses 5 and 7. We're not to pray like the hypocrites. We're not to pray like the Gentiles. Who are the hypocrites that Jesus has uh, in mind? Well, he probably has in mind, frankly, the Pharisees. They're they're regularly in his sights. You read through the Gospels, uh, he always seems to be taking aim at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the the religious professionals, if you will. Um, the folks who would parade themselves around, uh, strut, strut around, uh, uh, sort of showing off all of their theological knowledge and all of their righteousness. Um, the kind of person that Jesus tells the story about, uh, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the publican who both go up to the temple and they go up to the temple of all things to pray. Uh, and uh, Jesus describes the Pharisee as this one who 
who probably speaks very eloquently, uh, who stands in a public place so that he can be heard. Lord, you know, I mean, you know this. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, but I tithe all that I receive and I fast twice a week. I'm not like this sinner over here. And then the sinner who comes up into the temple can't even raise his eyes to heaven, uh, beats on his chest and simply calls upon God to have mercy upon him. And Jesus says that it's the publican, not the Pharisee, not the one who paraded his righteousness all over the place, not the one who was eloquent in a public place in his praying, but the publican, the sinner is the one who went away justified, went away forgiven, went away hearing in his ears uh, the word of peace spoken to him by God. Uh, Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't, don't parade this stuff around. And, and in effect, it seems to me what Jesus, at least by implication, uh, is saying is if you're going to be engaged in this business of praying, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you are a sinner, redeemed by grace, redeemed by God's mercy, made a son, a daughter of your Father in heaven solely because of his limitless love for you. Don't parade around like a hypocrite. Come as you are, what you are, uh, offering your sincere and genuine prayers to God. Uh, That's the first corrective. The second corrective is don't pray like the Gentiles. Uh, What would the Gentiles do? Well, apparently the Gentiles, verse 7 and and following, would kind of pile up phrases. They, they They would just sort of keep praying. More seemed to be better, you know, words upon words upon words, phrases upon phrases upon phrases. A number of the commentators on this passage actually make a connection between what Jesus is talking about here and that confrontation that Elijah had with the 450 prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. You You remember that great passage? Here's this one lone prophet of Israel and 450 prophets of Baal. And you remember Elijah put him to a test uh, and, and said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going we're to build an altar here and we're going we're to lay the wood out on this altar and then we're going to sacrifice some, some animals and we'll, we'll put all of the pieces of the animals in perfect order and then we're going we're to saturate the whole thing with water. We're going to douse it with water. Okay? And they even built a trench around this thing to, to retain all of this water. And then Elijah put him to the test and said, you call upon your God and have your God come down and consume this thing with fire. And so the 450 prophets of Baal begin to pray. And nothing happens. And so they pray louder. And then Elijah, it's such a great scene. Then Elijah mocks them and says, perhaps you should speak louder. Maybe he's asleep and he can't hear you. Perhaps he's away on a vacation. If you look at the text, one of the things Elijah says in mocking their God is, 
perhaps he's relieving himself somewhere. He's using the facilities and he can't hear your prayers. So, so use more words and speak more loudly and maybe you can get his attention. Don't pray like that. Jesus says you don't have to pray that way. Your father knows what you need even before you ask him. So you don't have to pile up these empty, meaningless phrases. Why? Because their gods are no gods, and your God is your Father who knows what you need even before you ask. So how are we to pray? Uh, We're to pray with real freedom. Uh, We're to pray uh, with honesty, with openness. We're, We're to pray in the way that we would talk to each other. After all, that's, that's essentially what prayer is. Prayer is me talking to God. It's, it's me, the finite person, limited uh, in every respect, speaking to God, the infinite person, limited in no respect. Uh, and so I can, I can come to him very freely, very boldly. How do I come? I come without hypocrisy. Uh, I come uh, not feeling like more words or phrases uh, are better because with more words and phrases I can get his attention. Third thing, to whom do I pray? Prayer is assumed. Um, I come without hypocrisy, without pretension. To whom do I pray? Verse 9, I come to God who is my father. Now, this is, this is very familiar language to us. Okay. We, we, there, I doubt that there's a person in this room who hasn't prayed the Lord's Prayer more times than you can count. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, on top of that, I doubt there's a person in this room who hasn't addressed God in the manner in which Jesus commands us to address him, addressing him as father, hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of times. What we probably don't catch the electricity of is how unusual it would have been uh, for anyone to have addressed the Holy One of Israel with such intimate language. But that is how Jesus encourages us to address God as our Father. Uh, He is our Father. We are His children. Uh, J.I. Packer, who's written uh, a great book. Many of you have read it, I'm sure. Uh, If you haven't, um, shame on you. No, I'm kidding. If you haven't, it's a great book to read, Um, Knowing God. Uh, Packer in the book Knowing God, in the chapter entitled Sons of God, says that justification, this declaration of God based on the finished work of Christ, that I am forgiven and accepted by God, justification is the foundational blessing of the Christian life. It's like the door into the house. It's the foundational blessing. It is the blessing without which 
we do not know the other blessings. In the same way you can't enjoy the rooms in the house if you don't go through the door, apart from justification, you can't know the other blessings of the Christian life. But as somebody pointed out to me recently, it seems that that we, probably because we stand in this stream of, of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, for whom justification by faith was such an enormous and significant scriptural teaching uh, for whom it made such a great difference. Sometimes it seems like we just sort of stay in the doorway and we marvel at the hinges and we love the latch uh, and the color of the door is delightful and the intricacies of the laminated wood are beautiful and we, we delight in the threshold but we never get on the other side of the door. And what is on the other side of the door is what Packer calls the highest blessing of the Christian life, which is to be sons and daughters of our Father who is in heaven. I mentioned it this morning. It's one of those colors on the rainbow. It's not the only color, but it's one of the really brilliant, bright colors of the rainbow that is the gospel of the kingdom that I am a child of the God of heaven and earth. Think about it. Who am I? We address God as Father because God in mercy has taken a self-conscious rebel, a God-denying and God-hating sinner, and has rescued me from judgment. But beyond rescuing me from judgment, has adopted me and made me his child and an heir with Jesus, my elder brother, of all of the fullness of the Father's house. I address the God of heaven and earth as Father. There's a wonderful picture that maybe some of you have seen. It's a picture of John Kennedy President Kennedy with his cabinet standing, several members of his cabinet standing in the Oval Office. It's a black and white photograph. And there are probably five or six cabinet officials or advisors standing, flanking the president. And you can see the presidential seal in the middle of the carpet, so you know they're in the Oval Office. And do you know who is standing right on top of the presidential seal? Anybody know? You ever seen this picture? Little John John. Okay. Now, okay, it's a photo op, all right? But it, but it communicates something very significant. Here is the most powerful person, arguably, in the world, in the most powerful place, symbolically, anywhere on the planet. And what has happened? His son has come into his office And when his son comes into his office, the wheels of government stop so that the father can attend to the need, the concern of his child. Who do you address? You address the creator of the ends of the earth. And when you come into his presence, he gives you his undivided attention. It's a a stunning thing. The theologians talk about the fact that the knowledge of God is undistracted. 
And what they mean when they say that, when they talk about the knowledge of God being undistracted, is simply this. God can give attention to any particular at any time among all of the limitless, innumerable particulars that he gives his attention to simultaneously. I don't know if you've ever been in a Korean prayer meeting, but the Koreans, when they pray, they all pray at the same time. 20 of them, 40 of them, 100 of them, 200 of them, 2,000 of them. They all stand up and they all pray at the same time. When the theologians say the knowledge of God is undistracted, it means that while all of those voices are confusing to you, they're not confusing to him. Every one of his children gets his undistracted, undivided attention. Who do you address? You address your father. Okay? So prayer is assumed. How do we come? We come without pretense, and we come to our Father. Okay? He's the one we address. Now, last, how do we pray? And this is where I think there's a real challenge. As you look at this prayer, Jesus gives us not a mantra that's to be recited, but he gives us categories for praying. He gives us priorities for our praying. Um, and I want to encourage you uh, in, in the week to come as you, uh, and I don't know what your habits are, don't know how you construct uh, a daily time of prayer, um, but let me encourage you as you think about daily praying or weekly praying, whenever it is that you set aside time to pray, let me challenge you to struggle to use the Lord's Prayer, again, not as a mantra that you would recite, but as a way to order your praying. What are the priorities that Jesus would have us observe, think about as we pray? The first one is a concern for the name of God. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. May your name be regarded. May it be respected. May it be revered. May it be sanctified. May it be set apart. What, what's in a name? Okay. Uh, in the Bible, the name was representative of the thing named. When Adam was doing all of that work in, in the garden, you know, and he couldn't find a helper that was suitable for him, he was naming all of the animals. He wasn't arbitrary about that. He was giving names to things that reflected the essence of the thing. Okay? So, for example, when he got to the hippopotamus, he called it a hippopotamus because in his mind it was a river horse. That's what hippopot hippopotamus comes from a couple of Greek words that means that mean river horse. That's what it was. He didn't call it dandelion because it wasn't a dandelion. It was a hippopotamus. It was a river horse. 
And when God identifies Himself, whether with Moses describing Himself as the one who has always existed, Yahweh, I am who I am, I will be what I will be. Or later in Exodus 34, when God asks him if he can see his glory, and he says, you can't see my glory, but I'll set you in the niche of this rock here, and I'll let my glory pass by you. And then subsequently, he gives him his name, that he is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, but also just and righteous who will by no means clear the guilty. He's not using arbitrary language. He's describing who he is. And the first concern, the first concern of a child of his or her heavenly father ought to be the hallowing the regarding, the respecting, the family name, the name of the Father. Hallowed be your name. What does that start to look like? Well, think of all of the places in the world. How do you flesh this out in your own prayer time? Think of all of the places in the world where the name of God is not hallowed. Whether in the home of your next door neighbor or in a public school or in a distant nation, places where the name of God is not respected and valued in all of its beauty and reflecting all of the character that God is. God would have us pray that His name would be hallowed. God would have us pray that His kingdom would come. There's a connection among these things, a regard for the name of God, the coming of his kingdom, the doing of his will. As the name of God is regarded, the kingdom of God begins to come. And as the kingdom comes, what comes with it is a concern that the will of God be done in particular places here on earth, just as it's done in heaven. So what are our priorities? To pray that the name of God would be hallowed, that the kingdom of God would come, and that his will would be done. Now, if that starts to happen, trust me, that benefits everybody. Because when the kingdom comes, the blessings of the kingdom come with it. And that means that righteousness comes, and justice comes, and mercy comes, and compassion comes. So we're praying for things that begin to touch the whole of life. Jesus then says, verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Why would that be inserted in there? Well, connect it to what's gone before and connect it to this theme that, as I mentioned this morning, is a central theme in Matthew's gospel. The idea of the kingdom of heaven. Why do we pray for our daily bread? Literally, but in its broader applications. Why would we pray that God would meet our needs, uh, that he would be our sufficiency, that we would not know any lack? Why would we pray, broadening this petition, for people's health and well-being? Well, let me suggest it's not so that, as John Piper puts it, it's not so that we can enjoy more comforts in the den. And if I had the quote from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, I'd read it for you. Uh, But Piper makes this observation that prayer very often malfunctions 
Because what God intends for prayer to be is a means by which we appropriate from our commander-in-chief everything that we need as his army in the world to prosecute his purposes in the world. And prayer is not given to us, he says, as a domestic intercom so that we can enjoy more comforts in the den. But it's a means by which we appropriate from our commander-in-chief everything we need to prosecute his purposes in the world. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need. Give us health. Give us financial resources. Give us wisdom. Give us learning. Give us understanding. Why? So that we can prosecute your purposes in the world. And then forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Not that there is any sense in which God's forgiving me is contingent upon my forgiving you, but rather the calculus of the thing is the reverse. It is experiencing the depth and the wonder, the extent of God's forgiveness as it has come to me that becomes a fountain out of which forgiveness is extended to one another. And and I'll, I'll just suggest to you that what Jesus has in mind here is a quality of life observed among Christians, among the people of God that distinguishes them from the rest of the world. You get out in there in the world and people don't do what the Lord through the Apostle Paul encourages us to do in 1 Corinthians, to love one another and make love the distinguishing mark and feature of the life of the church. Out there in the world, people keep a record of wrongs. People hold grudges. People don't extend grace and mercy and forgiveness. People make mountains out of molehills. My grandmother was um, an irascible old Irish woman. Uh, And... uh, I love to tell this story only because it's so representative of how we tend to function. She put some clothes out on the line one day, and the next-door neighbor turned a lawn sprinkler on and got all of her clothes wet. Well, my grandmother complained to the neighbor, and the neighbor was unapologetic, so I was just watering my lawn. Well, the next time the neighbor put her clothes out on the line, my grandmother got a garden hose out and hosed it down. That's what you find out in the world. But in the church, there's to be something markedly different. There's there's to be a manner of conduct one with another that is frankly arresting. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32 is... I think the most demanding verse in the whole Bible. Ephesians 4.32 Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Jesus encourages us to seek forgiveness and then to extend forgiveness. And then verse 13, uh, the last, I guess, in sequence but one of the most important uh, in terms of priority is the recognition that we're engaged in a conflict. Uh, There is a warfare here, folks. 
Uh, and it is a warfare uh, with our own hearts, uh, with evil, with forces of evil arrayed against the God of heaven and earth, with forces of evil that are arrayed against uh, the cause of Christ, uh, with uh, forces of evil that are arrayed against the church. And Jesus encourages us as a regular habit to be taking that conflict seriously. Lead us not into temptation. In other words, Lord, protect me from myself. Build a hedge around me. Uh, When I was um, a new Christian, maybe you remember this little cartoon, ran across this little cartoon in a newspaper. Pogo was the cartoon character. We have met the enemy. And he is us. The, The first enemy is not the enemy out there. It's the enemy in here. Lead us not into temptation. We're engaged in a conflict. And and. Our praying needs to reflect that. And it's a conflict uh, with our own hearts and our own sinful proclivities and tendencies. But we are engaged in a conflict conflict with principalities and powers in heavenly places that are arrayed against the kingdom of Christ. And Christ would have us be mindful of that and would have us order our prayers accordingly. So, prayer is assumed. Okay? How do we come? How do we pray? We pray without pretension. To whom do we pray? We pray to our Father, who is the God of heaven and earth. And what do we pray? We pray these kinds of things. And again, my encouragement to you is that you, that you struggle with this. You know, you, you, you think, how can I order my praying so that it reflects more uh, of the priorities of King Jesus? Okay, let's pray together. Lord, help us, help us in this. Help, help me in this, but help us in this as a church. Uh, help us to take this business seriously and to understand, as, uh, as one of our dear brothers, uh, Eric Alexander, has said, that prayer is not something supplemental to the ministry of the gospel, but it is fundamental. It is of the essence of gospel ministry. Um, help me to know it. Help Zach and Glenn to know it. Help us to know it as a church. And then help us to order our praying, uh, Lord Jesus, after the pattern that you have established for us, according to the priorities that you've established for us, we pray in your name. Amen.